0: Open your Bibles with me to Psalm 24. Psalm 24. Good to see you tonight. Everybody's staying cool out in the hot weather. Aren't you grateful for air conditioning? Amen. All right. Psalm 24. I'm telling you, you ought to be grateful. I've preached in places that don't have air conditioning matter of fact, the last time I preached overseas, it was in a place without air condition, and I, was, I had to preach in my socks, so that was kind of weird. Uh, they, everybody takes their shoes off when you walk into the church building, and, and so uh, I was preaching in socks, sweltering heat. So uh, be grateful, be grateful for your, for your AC. Psalm 24, as I said earlier, we are just walking through the Psalms uh, chapter by chapter, so we're going through the entire book, so we've got 150 Psalms to go through. And so we're just at the very beginning of this thing. It's been a great study, and I've enjoyed uh, preparing for it. Before we read Psalm 24, let me give you just a summary of the psalms. It comes from Dr. Kendall Easley. He does a great job summarizing the different books of the Bible, kind of a one- or two-sentence summary of what the book is all about. And so someone asks you, what is the book of Psalms? Uh, This is the way you can answer it. it. It emphasizes that God, the true and glorious King, is worthy of all praise and prayer, thanksgiving, and confidence whatever the occasion in personal or community life. So the Psalms are a collection of of hymns, praise songs put together. And the major theme of these songs is that God is worthy of our worship and praise. God is worthy of our confidence and trust no matter what we're going through in life. Good times, bad times, hard times, wonderful times, God's worthy of praise and God is worthy of our trust and confidence. And that's what the Psalms are about. They give us Uh, vocabulary to praise God, and they remind us of how great He is, and they are a clarion call for us to just trust God, even though we may be walking, as we said last week, through the valley of the shadow of death, we can trust God with our lives. So keeping that in mind, look with me in Psalm 24, Psalm 24, a psalm of David, we're going to read the entire thing, it's just ten verses, so it won't take us long. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Great verse. The world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. I love that phrase, God of Jacob. We'll talk some more about that a little bit later. Selah. Lift up your heads, O gates, verse 7, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Selah. Well, there's a lot in this psalm, all right? Let's pray together, and we'll we'll jump right in. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. We're grateful, Lord, for your goodness and grace and mercy and love. Grateful for this time together to uh, just gather and fellowship and study. Lord, I pray that you would help us by your Spirit to learn and to apply what we learn. And Lord, I pray that you use this time to give us a deeper hunger for your word, I pray that you would transform our lives, and God, that we, we may leave this place today knowing we have met with the living God. So Lord, just have your way in our midst. We love you, we praise you, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Hey, real quick, before uh, we get started, I uh, just want to remind you uh, who Lawson Harlow is. Lawson, raise your hand there. There's Lawson uh, we just voted on Lawson Sunday. He is our newest staff member. He's, a, he's our church planting intern, and so he's starting this week. That means that he's coming on board for a period of time, uh, nine months, 12 months, something like that, and we are... Uh, training him. He's just involved in the week-to-week ministries here at the church as a staff member, and he's going through some comprehensive training to get ready to go out and plant a brand new church somewhere in the area. We don't know exactly where yet. We're thinking somewhere in DeSoto County. Uh, we've got some some work to do there to, to discern that, but we feel like it's, it's somewhere geographically uh, close, and uh, and he's on board with us now, so we're thrilled to have Lawson here. His wife's name is, is Beth, and so you'll get to know them over the coming uh, days and weeks and months, but we're we're thrilled that they're here. So everyone, remember to say "Hey to Lawson." All right, all right, good deal. Not not right now, but later on, say 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 "Hey to Lawson." So I'm glad to have him on board. Notice I've titled this psalm "The King of Glory" and. That title comes from the fact that the phrase or the title, King of Glory, is found five times in the 24th Psalm. If you look at it there, you see that this this phrase, King of Glory, is used uh, five different times. And so that's obviously a major theme of this psalm. We are to focus our thoughts on the King of Glory. Now, uh, some of the psalms give us the historical background That spurred the writing of a particular psalm. We don't have the historical background of this psalm. All we have is the fact that David wrote it. But most commentators believe that David wrote this psalm uh, on the occasion of his bringing the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. If you read over in 2 Samuel chapter 6 or 1 Chronicles chapters 15 and 16, you'll see the story of David. Bring the ark into Jerusalem so that it could be there, central in that city. And you remember the story. He's coming in, dancing with all of his might before uh, the ark. And there's this great celebration as the Ark of the Covenant, which symbolized the presence of God among his people, was brought into that great city of Jerusalem. And so that helps us to make sense of those last few verses. Lift up your heads, O gates. In other words, pay attention, O gates. Something important is about to happen. Be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. So this ark is symbolizing the presence of God, and, and David is saying in poetic form, Hey, gates, pay attention. Doors, lift up, open up. The king of glory is coming in as the ark of the covenant comes into the city of Jerusalem. And so that's probably the historical background that fits the writing of this psalm. But there's a lot more at play here. You know that the Holy Spirit inspired the writing of this psalm. And the Holy Spirit, as we'll see a little bit later, had much more in mind uh, as he uh, inspired David to write down these words and breathe through him as he wrote the 24th psalm. Now, just a little bit of um, music information for you folks that that like music. Uh, This was written to be sung. And most scholars believe this is an antiphonal psalm. In other words, there's a part that one person would say, and then maybe the congregation would answer back uh, that person. Uh, probably the people uh, open with verses 1 and 2, this statement, the earth is the Lord's, the fullness thereof. And perhaps a singular person, a leader, would ask the questions in verse, verses 3, 8, and 10. So you would have one person Uh, saying uh, in verse 3, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And the people would answer back together. And then one person would say, Who is this King of Glory? And the people would answer back together. And then verse 10, Who is this King of Glory? And the people would answer back, The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. This is probably antiphonal praise, people going back and forth, probably uh, how it was meant to be and sort of like uh, churches used to do a lot of responsive reading back in the day. How many remember responsive reading? You'd have one person queue up and read and the, the congregation would answer back together. This is probably responsive singing. Probably that's how this psalm is meant to be, uh, uh, to be used in worship. And so it's really a beautiful psalm put together uh, just um, in, in a very uh, poetic way. And so this psalm... Uh, poses and then answers two vital questions. And so I want to just focus in on the two major questions that this psalm asks, and then I want to answer those questions from the Word of God, from the psalm itself. And so here's the first vital question that this psalm asks. Who is this King of Glory? Who is this King of Glory? So if the Ark of the Covenant represents the one true God, it represents His presence, who, who is God? Who is this God that we are worshiping? Who is this God that we are recognizing uh, his presence in our midst? Who is this God? Who is the King of Glory? What is he like? Uh, who is the King of Glory? Well, again, this psalm answers that question. And by the way, isn't that a question that our society is asking about God? Who is God? You know, If you say the word God in just a generic sense, there are all sorts of ideas about who God is and what the right religion is or what the right denomination is. And there are all these ideas and opinions about God. Uh, But the Bible gives us a definitive picture of who the one true God is. And so when we say God here in our midst, we're not just using the word God in a generic sense. We're talking about the God of the Bible. And we're going to see what the God of the Bible is like, first of all. He is the creator of everything. He's the creator of everything. Verses 8 and 10, who is this king of glory? He's the creator of everything. Look what it says in verse 2. Speaking of the earth, he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. And so the Bible is clear that God has founded and established the earth, put it in its place, uh, crafted it just the way that he wants. I don't know if you've ever done much thinking about how um, how unique earth is. When you look at the entire known universe, you look at the different galaxies and solar systems and planets, it really is remarkable how the earth has been formed specifically to support Uh, human life I mean if it was just tilted a little bit more this way or this way on its axis there's no way human life could be supported on this planet but it's been crafted by a grand designer for a special purpose I came across this quote from Warren Wiersbe he writes of all the heavenly bodies created by the Lord the earth is the one he has chosen to be his own special sphere of activity Clarence Benson called the earth the theater of the universe I like that for on it the Lord demonstrated his love in what Dorothy Sayers called the greatest drama ever staged. He chose a planet, a people, and a land. And there he sent his son to live, to minister, to die, to be raised from the dead, that lost sinners might be saved. So this earth, this planet is a special place. It's where the drama of redemption unfolds. And God's the one that crafted this earth. He's the one that put it in its place and made it just like it is. And so we uh, recognize that God is the creator of everything. And, and by the way, just to remind you of how incredible God's power is, he created it simply by speaking. Right? He spoke and the universe leapt into existence. Right? And if you don't think that's powerful, again, I've said this before, you know, tomorrow at lunchtime say, ham sandwich and see what happens. See if one appears on your table. It's probably not going to happen unless you know a loved one hears you said and and makes it for you, right? But God spoke and and the universe leapt into uh, existence. He is the creator of everything. Amazing power. But not only is he the creator of everything, he's the owner of everything. Which we go back to verse 1. You might have wondered why I went to verse 2 first. But to understand verse uh, 1, you need to understand verse 2. Because he's the creator of everything, he owns everything. Look what it says in verse 1. The earth is who? It's the Lord's. And notice there, it's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, which means this is the divine covenant name of God. Sometimes pronounced Yahweh or Jehovah. It's the name that God revealed to Moses and to his people. It's the personal, relational name of God for his people. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. It's so not only did God make everything by virtue of the fact that he made everything, he, he owns it all. He's the creator, he's the owner of it all. There's a song that uh, I love, it's by Stephen Kirsch Chapman, and it's just called Yours, that's the name of the song, Yours. And the song is about the fact that everything is God's. It's, it's all yours, God, it's all yours, and, and as we think about God creating everything, we know that God has a claim on everything. He is the owner of everything. Well, hey, by the way, that reminds us of our role as stewards, right? We don't, honestly, we don't really own anything. Anything we have is just something God's letting us hold on to for a while, right? We're, we're not owners, we're, we're stewards. God's the owner. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So he's the creator of everything. He's the owner of everything. Third, he's the proper object of worship. He's the proper object of worship. Look what it says in verse 3. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? In other words, he's saying that that, that people would go to the hill of the Lord uh, where the... A temple would eventually be built by David's son Solomon where the Ark of the Covenant would rest in the holy place in the midst of that temple structure. And David is saying here that people would go up to that hill uh, there to be in the presence of God symbolized by the Ark and there they would worship God. He's speaking here of worshipers. And this is a reminder that God is the proper object of worship. God is the only being, the only thing in the universe worthy of worship. Worthy of our praise and adoration, He is the only one worthy He's the proper object of worship. So if you're worshiping anything else, if you're looking to anything else to find ultimate satisfaction or peace or life, that thing is an idol in your life. It's, it, that's, that's sinful, that's idolatry, because God is the proper object of worship. I had a great conversation. ...with one of my kids today about how, how good things can become ultimate things... ...and good things, uh, if they're uh, uh, out of proportion in your life, can become idols in your life. And we need to make sure that God is number one on our list. He is the proper object of worship. Here's the next thing about this king of glory. Who is he? He is mighty. Look what it says in verse 8. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. David understood enemies. He was always surrounded by enemies. I mean, through his entire from 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 his early years uh, until he died, David was constantly uh, at war with somebody. You know, the Philistines, Absalom, his son, tried to overthrow his kingdom. Uh, he was always at war, and so David understood enemies, and he understood that God was the one that gave him ultimate victory over his enemy. So he calls him there, the Lord, strong and mighty, mighty in battle. He's speaking here of the omnipotence, of the the strength of God. He is mighty. And just kind of a reminder, uh, we use the word omnipotence when we speak of God. That means that God has all power. He has all power uh, at his disposal. Here's the next thing about this king of glory. He is the God of presence. Look look in verse 9. Lift up your heads, O gates! Lift up, lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in again. The Ark of the Covenant, this piece of furniture, uh, furniture, furniture. That I was trying to say furnishings and furniture at the same time, and it just came out furniture. Uh, but this piece of furniture uh, that the Lord told uh, the nation of Israel to build symbolized the presence of God. It was this this wooden box covered in gold with a mercy seat on top of that box inside. The box was the Ten Commandments, which reminded them of the uh, moral law of God, the a uh, staff of uh, Aaron was in there. There was some manna in there at one time. And this 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 box is where God's glory, when it was in its proper place at the proper time, and they were worshiping in the proper way, God's glory, his manifest glory, the Bible calls it Shekinah glory, would come down and rest upon that box. So they could, they could see the manifest presence of God over that Ark of the Covenant. So this Ark symbolized the presence of God. That's why the Ark was such a big deal. Okay? Um, there's a lot more to the Ark than Indiana Jones finding it in a desert in, you know, Egypt fighting the Nazis. All right, that's that's Hollywood. That that's fiction. Um, you know, the, the Ark of the Covenant symbolizes the presence of God. And If you remember, there's a story when uh, the Philistines sent the Ark back. They they had captured the Ark in battle, but everyone started suffering a, this plague. As long as they held onto the Ark, so they said, "We don't want the Ark anymore." They send the Ark back to Israel, and when they first began to try to transport the Ark. Uh, It was in the back of a a cart, and some oxen were pulling it, and the oxen stumbled, and, and the cart shifted, and the Ark of the Covenant began to shift, and one of the men traveling there named Uzzah reached out his hand to steady the ark, which seems like a reasonable thing to do. You know what happened? He was struck dead. Struck dead. That very, you know why? Because God gave the people instructions how you are to move it. You put poles through the rings, and priests are to pick up the poles and carry the poles. You don't touch the ark. It symbolizes the presence of a holy God. So that's what it symbolizes. So it's a big deal. So when this ark is, is coming into Jerusalem, they are rejoicing the fact that God is a God, listen to me, who desires presence among his people. And that's an astounding fact, that this God who spoke and created the universe, desires to be near to us. Isn't that that wonderful? The God who is transcendent is also imminent. He is is drawn near to us. So that's why those promises in Scripture are so precious to us who are believers in Jesus Christ. Promises like the Lord saying, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Or, Or Jesus saying... I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. These, these promises of the presence of God. And, and what Psalm 24 is celebrating is this reality. The, the king of glory, the omnipotent creator and owner of everything, wants to dwell among his people. And that's symbolized in the Ark of the Covenant. So he is the God of presence. I think sometimes we lose sight of how awesome a reality it is that God is present with us in our life. And we need to recapture that. By the way, it's the secret to living with no fear in your life. We talked about that last week in Psalm 23. The next next thing about this king of glory, he is the God who reigns with his angelic army. He is the God who reigns with his angelic army. Look what it says in verse 10. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts. That's a military term. The Lord who reigns over an army and... No question, this is referring to the angelic army, uh, the the angelic warriors that God reigns over and sends to do His bidding. And you know, we a lot of times we think of angels uh, the way they're portrayed in you know media or in movies or uh, books, and we think of angels these you know uh, cute little chubby children flying around with wings and and uh, you know kind of floating around on clouds. Uh, the Bible paints a very different picture. Angels in the Bible were fierce warriors um, that were on mission for the one true God. One of my favorite stories is found over in 2 Kings. Uh, Elisha uh, is really causing a foreign king a lot of trouble because every time this foreign king would try to attack Israel, Elisha would say, hey, uh, this king's coming to attack you, be on guard. And he would give them the you know, intelligence so they could defeat the king. And it was driving this king crazy. So this king Hazor says, listen, I, I want to go and kill Elisha. So he sends his whole army to the city where Elisha was. And you have Elisha and his servant. They're not warriors. They're just the, a prophet and his, and his assistant. And all of a sudden here this, comes this huge army from a foreign invader. And the servant's ringing. What are we going to do, Elisha? There's this big army coming to get us, right? We're surrounded. And Elisha... Praise! If you remember this, Elisha prays, "Lord, open his eyes that he can see." And he opens his eyes, and all of a sudden, this servant is is allowed to see the spiritual realm. And everywhere covering the mountains are these these mighty angels, uh, warriors, and chariots of fire. And the servant says, "Oh, okay, we're okay, we're okay." And so the Lord is the Lord of hosts. He has these these angels, these angelic beings at his disposed on his command that he sends to do his perfect bidding and so he is the god who reigns with his angelic army and so who is this king of glory he's a he's awesome right all this is awesome but still someone could say that's still kind of generic i mean you could say you know a lot of religions could say their god is powerful and and creator and these different things so so who is this King of Glory specifically? Can you get me on the generic sense of who this, this King of Glory is? Well, let me give you the last thing here. He, the King of Glory, is Jesus. He is Jesus. To get any more specific. Now, here's the cool thing. On what day of the week did Jesus ride into Jerusalem to the worship of the crowds who were laying down palm branches? What day of the week was that? Palm, not y'all. Like, is this a trick question? Y'all thought I'm trying to trip you up. I'm not trying. Palm, palm, what? Sunday, Palm Sunday. So, the last week of his life before he was crucified, Jesus Christ rode in Jerusalem. Remember, the crowds were cheering, waving palm branches, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So, he rode into town on a what? On a donkey. On what day? Sunday. Okay. All right. Now we have some. Some ancient rabbinic literature. And uh, we have a record of the particular psalms they would use in worship on particular days. We even have a record of the songs they would sing on the week leading up to Passover, which that was the week when Jesus Christ rode into Jerusalem, right? And so here's the deal. This ancient rabbinic literature tells us that during Herod's temple era, this is Herod's temple that Jesus uh, was, was ministering around and in, during the Herodic Temple era, on Sunday, the Sunday before the, the Passover, the priests were singing, listen to this, Psalm 24. Isn't that interesting? So here's what happened on Palm Sunday. Jesus Christ was riding into the city, and the priests were singing this. Lift up your heads, O gates. And be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord strong in battle, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. So while they were singing this song, the King of glory, Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, was coming into the city. How awesome is that? You think that's coincidence? No. God lined that up. I believe Psalm 24 is messianic. It speaks of Jesus Christ coming into his city. It has a a, a double meaning, if you will. It begins with the Ark of the Covenant, but is fulfilled perfectly in Jesus Christ, God on earth, coming into the city uh, to be among his people, eventually to die uh, for the sins of the world. And so, who is this King of Glory? He is... Jesus. So that's the first question: Who is the King of Glory? We get the answers here in this psalm. But here's the second question: We we'll answer this, and we'll wrap up. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Verse three: Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? That question is one of of, of worth. It's like he's saying, you know, who's worthy to go up there and stand before God and worship? All right, who 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 can do that? And the answer is, we get this from putting all the evidence together, true worshipers. Who does God want in his presence worshiping him? True worshipers. What do you mean by true worshipers? Well, I'm glad you asked. Psalm 24 gives us characteristics of true worshipers. The kind of people God is looking for to come and worship and be in his presence. Everybody with me? Alright, so who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who who does God want to be in his presence to worship him? True worshiper. Here Here's some characteristics of true worshipers. True worshipers, transformed lives show up in their behavior. A true worshiper, their transformed lives shows up in their behavior. In other words, they worship not just in word, but their lives line up with what's coming from their lips. That's pretty important, isn't it? Their lives line up with what's coming from their lips. So wait, where do you in this from? Look what it says in verse 4. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his, in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Clean hands. This, the, the hands are uh, metaphorical for what we do. The, the, the acts we carry out. The things we do. The way that we live, if you will. And so God... Once true worshipers, people whose lives, what they do with their hands, lines up with their lips, what they are saying about uh, the Lord. Second characteristic of true worshipers, true worshipers' hearts line up with their external praise. Their hearts line up with their external praise. Look at verse 4. The question, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? The answer, he who has clean hands and a pure heart. A true worshiper is someone that has a pure heart. Now let me tell you what God thinks about folks that say one thing with their lips while their heart is, is not in love with Him. Over in the book of Isaiah, he says several times, these people, they honor me with their lips, but not with their hearts. They're, he says in Isaiah, their hearts are far from me. And God is offended by those that would listen to this that would go through the, the religiosity of worship, go through the motions of, of religious services while their hearts were far from Him. That offends God. God doesn't like people to come to Him saying one thing with their lips while their hearts are just not in love with Him. He wants our hearts to be pure, to line up with what is coming from our lips. So, for example, you know, we sing these great hymns of the faith. Do we really mean them? Sometimes if, if, if we sang what was really in our hearts, instead of saying, you know, I surrender all, we might be saying, I surrender some. <laughs> right? Do we really mean what we're singing? Do we, do, are, are we just going through the motions of religiosity? Or do our hearts engage with God. Do they line it with what's coming from our lips? True worshippers' hearts line it with their external praise. Let me give you another characteristic of true worshippers. True worshippers shun evil. Look in verse four. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. He does not lift up his soul to what is false, he does not swear deceitfully. And so a true worshiper does not want to be entangled with the with the evil in the world. And wants to shun evil. Don't want to be involved in deceit doesn't want to be involved in what's false, doesn't want to be around uh, people that are deceitful. They, They want to steer clear of that. True worshipers are those that shun evil. But here's another thing. True worshipers have received God's righteousness by faith. True worshipers have received God's righteousness by faith. Now here's the problem with the answer to the question who shall ascend the hill of the Lord if you just read verse 4 you start thinking "Uh uh-oh who measures up to that right I mean if if God is looking for true worshipers and true worshipers are those who have clean hands and a pure heart well we all fall short at some level don't we you ever had dirty hands before you ever had an impure heart before yeah all of us we all fall short of the standard of verse 4. And so if this is the standard of those that God wants in his presence, we ought to all start saying, uh-oh, none of us measure up. It reminds me of Romans 3, 23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all missed the, the, the perfect standard, the, the mark God has set. And so we begin to feel a little hopeless here, right? Who can, who can worship God? Who can be in his presence who can relate to him and engage him in a personal way? I mean, who can do that? Because none of us ultimately have clean hands and a pure heart. Well, that's where we get to the language of grace and faith. To realize that true worshipers are those who have received God's righteousness as a gift. They have been saved by God's grace, appropriated to their life by faith. Which, by the way, is just a reminder that the people who were saved in the Old Testament were saved the same way we we're saved in on this side of the cross. Everyone who's ever been saved has been saved by faith alone, through God's grace alone, in God's Redeemer alone. We're saved... By looking back at what Jesus Christ has done for us, died on the cross, rose from the dead, we place our faith in the finished work of Christ so that faith saves us Uh, based upon the merits, the work of Jesus. The Old Testament saints were saved by believing God's promises of a coming Redeemer. And they placed their faith in what was coming, but they were saved by faith the same way we are saved by faith. And that's true in this psalm as well. You see in the next verse, verse 5, the language of grace and the language of faith. Look what it says in verse 5. He, the true worshiper, will receive blessing from the Lord. Notice this this language of grace. It's a a gift he receives. Blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. So the true worshiper has not earned the right to be in God's presence. Everybody look at me for a moment. This is important. The true worshiper has not earned the right to be in God's presence. He has not just cleaned up his life to the point where he can run into the presence of a holy God. It just ain't going to happen. He has received by faith God's salvation. And you say, uh, Wade, where do you see this idea of faith? I see grace as a gift you receive. Where do you see faith? Well, look what it says there in verse 4. The true worshiper does not lift up his soul to what is false. Uh, Derek Kidner, an Old Testament scholar, says this this idea of lifting up your soul is the idea of putting your confidence in something. And and he quotes Psalm 25. Look in Psalm 25 verse 1. Again, David, the next psalm, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. And here's the parallel statement, O my God, in you I trust. So this idea of lifting up your soul is trusting in God. And to lift up your soul to another is is idolatry. But to lift up your soul to God is faith. God, I trust in you. I place my faith in you. And so the true worshiper has lifted up their soul to God and said, God, you are my one hope. And because they've placed their faith in the one true God, the redeemer that God sends, Jesus Christ, God then gives them the gift of salvation the gift of righteousness or right standing before him. And so people who are true worshipers that can come into his presence and engage God in a personal way have received a gift of grace. We haven't earned it. It's a gift of grace, right? And that's the language of verses 4 and verses 5. And just to drive the point home, look what it says in verse 6. Such is the generation of those who seek him, Who seek the face of the God of Jacob. The God of Jacob. You remember Jacob? He could have said here God of Abraham or the God of Isaac. God of Joseph. He could have said God of Moses. God of Joshua. Why does he say the God of Jacob? I believe every time we see the God of Jacob in the Bible, it ought to remind us that God's a God of grace. Because if you remember Jacob's history, it was pretty sketchy, wasn't it? He was a trickster, a deceiver, he was selfish, he was manipulative, and yet he met God one night on the riverbank. Remember that story, he's wrestling with the Lord and... And and he thinks he's going to overcome the Lord. That's never going to happen. Of course, God allows him to wrestle with him for a moment. But he puts his hip out of joint to remind him of that night. And there's a change in Jacob's. Life. I don't have time to go into it. There's a change in Jacob's life after that that night when he encountered the God and knew, encountered God knew he had seen God and wrestled with uh, God. But again, there's some debate on this, but I believe that's probably a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. Uh, there on that riverbank. But 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 Jacob uh, met the Lord, he was saved, he was changed, and if God can be the God of Jacob, he can be the God of anybody. Right? If 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 Jacob can be changed by God's grace and saved by God's grace, none of us are beyond hope. None, none of us are hopeless. Because God is a God of grace. And so he's the God of Jacob. He's the God of grace. So, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? True worshipers. And true worshipers have received God's righteousness by faith. Don't read verse 4 and think that you earn your way into God's presence. Not how it works, okay? These are true worshipers that have been changed by receiving God's blessings of salvation through faith. Everybody got that? Okay, now look at the next thing. Well, let me read this from Charles Spurgeon first because it's too good not to read. Who is he that can gaze upon the Holy One and can abide in the blaze of his glory? Certainly none may venture to commune with God upon the footing of the law. In other words, we can't stand in God's presence based upon our performance of God's standards because we've all fallen short of his standards, right? I mean, who in this room has kept the Ten Commandments perfectly? Anybody? Anybody ever broken one of the Ten Commandments? If you say you haven't, well, you're lying. You just broke one, Okay. He says, certainly none may venture to commune with God upon the footing of the law, but grace can make us meet, make us acceptable to behold the vision of the divine presence. We don't come into God's presence on the basis of our performance because we've all blown it. We come into the presence of God based upon his performance, what he's done for us, to pay the penalty for our sins, to forgive us, so we can be cleansed and we can be transformed and we can know him personally. Amen? So, listen, salvation is not something you achieve. It's something you receive. It's not something that you do, D-O, to earn it. it. It's already been done, D-O-N-E, and you receive that as a free gift. And so true worshipers have received God's salvation, His righteousness by faith. But here's the uh, last thing we'll be through. True worshipers don't just seek God's hands, they seek God's face. Look in verse 6. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face, the face of the God of Jacob. It's easy sometimes when you're caught up in the rat race of life, and you're squeezed by life, or you're going through a valley in your life, like we see happening all the time in the Psalms, it's easy to just focus on God's hands, isn't it? God, help me here, help me there, provide for me here, provide for me there. Um, Bless me with this, bless me with that. And, And it's very easy to find ourselves always just seeking God's hands, the next blessing for our life. But David says, true worshipers are those that seek his face. Not only do they want to receive God's gifts, they want more of God. They want a closer more personal and intimate relationship with God. They're not pursuing God's stuff. They're pursuing God. That's the the characteristic of a true worshiper. We want the provision of God. The question is, do we desire the presence of God? Does Does our relationship with God consist of the stuff that he gives us and the ways that he blesses us? Or are we content with him? Are we content with knowing Him in a personal way? Talking to Him, walking with Him, growing in our knowledge of Him. That is the greatest gift that God gives us, Himself. Right? The greatest gift God gives us, Himself. The ESV Study Bible says this. This psalm asserts the astounding idea that the God who created and owns everything is the very same God into whose presence the faithful worshiper enters because of the covenant, the covenant with Israel in this case, and the covenant, the new covenant through Jesus Christ in our case. So this psalm asks two questions. Who is the king of glory? He's creator of everything, almighty God. He is Jesus. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who can be in his presence? Who can know him? Who can worship him? True worshipers, those that have received the gifts of salvation by faith and are being transformed by his power. Those are the true worshipers. And so let me ask you a question. When it comes to your spiritual journey, are you a true worshiper or, or are you just going through the religious motions? Can I remind you that when we stand before God, whether or not we go to heaven is not based upon our church attendance records or our denominational affiliation Or our religious ritual that we participated in. Whether or not we go to heaven is based upon what we did with Jesus here in this life. And those who have received Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior are transformed by God's grace. And even though they have unclean hands and impure hearts, God begins to transform them. To give them those clean hands and pure hearts and they come into God cleansed by his grace and they're worshiping because they are so overwhelmed with gratitude at who God is and what he's done for their lives that's true worshipers true worshipers come to church not because of some sense of religious duty true worshipers want to come because they want to seek his face they want to know Him more. Hey, you're getting together to sing great songs of doctrinal realities about the God who saved me, and then we're going to spend some time digging into His Word and studying it together. Sign me up, I'm there. Right? Sign me up, I'm there. And someone that doesn't want to be there for that. I just it's hard, to, it's hard to wrap your mind around that. Perhaps a person that doesn't want to be a part of that isn't really a true worshiper. They've never encountered God's grace through faith. Been transformed by the Lord. And so Psalm 24 is all about the King of glory. What an awesome God he is, an awesome, gracious God he is.